Lord God, we thank you for the stillness. We thank you, Lord, for your spirit that is in this place. And we ask that your spirit will blow through us, will blow through this place, will bring life and will bring understanding, will set before us the way that you have set up before us. Lord, thank you that uh, we can just have this time to think about a new book of the Bible, 1 John, and we ask, Lord, that you will prepare the soil of our hearts to receive what uh, the Apostle John is, has for us, the instruction that is um, that we find on the pages of this letter. Lord, I just want to pray for uh, this congregation. I want to pray for those who are at the camp right now. We pray that that'll be a, a meaningful time, that you will touch many lives, uh, be with the youth, and we pray that you will strengthen their faith through this weekend. I just want to pray for the kids, too, that... Uh, are here in this place and not at camp, maybe because they're too young or, or maybe for other reasons, and just encourage them, Lord. Help them to know that you have them right where you want them and help them to know your, your love and presence. And just uh, bless us, Lord, as we open up your words together. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, well, it's really good to be here. Kind of strange, if, if I'm honest, to be on this side of the room. Uh, as Jim mentioned, I'm a professor, so I'm kind of used to teaching, but this preaching thing is a different thing than teaching. So it may be that this, uh, this sermon might be a little more teachy-teachy than preachy-preachy, but uh, I'll try to get some fire and brimstone in there as well. So. Um, John's been bugging me to, to preach, and uh, I've been kind of resisting, and finally I said yes, thinking, oh, maybe I can get like a juicy sermon on the Leviticus or Old Testament law or the book of Judges. I know a lot about the book of Judges or Psalms or something like that. And uh, so when I said yes, he's like, I'd like you to please preach the first chapter of First John and also introduce the series. So, um, okay, tall order. I guess I can do that. And little did I know, like he was kind of scheming. Okay, Bellman said yes. How do I get myself out of town? And actually, I've got to get as many kids as I can out of town too so that they're not corrupted by Bellman's teaching. <laughs> anyway, while they're having fun and doing shenanigans in San Diego, we're gonna have our own fun just launching into the series of 1 John. So are you excited about 1 John? Yeah, yeah, all right, good. That's good. Um, I'm just gonna give you a quick overview, and I think these points might come up on the screen of what we're gonna to do today. It's kind of a tall order, but uh, so, so I'm gonna give you the overview, and then we're gonna kind of just jump right in. No like handy little hooky kind of story, we're just gonna jump in. All right, so we're gonna talk about some background stuff as we do when we enter into a new book of the Bible. So we're gonna talk about the audience and the author a little bit. We're going, to read, we're going to talk a bit about the book as a whole, because we're launching into this 13-week series. So what is, what's this book doing? How is John communicating through the book? And we're going to use 1 John 1, the first chapter, as our kind of launch into the whole series, the whole book. And then finally, and more briefly, I want to just give you a few tips that uh, you can have for just really maximizing this series. So hopefully, um, if you're just here for this Sunday, great. I think you'll get a lot out of it. But many of us are going to be kind of navigating through this series. And so hopefully this, this, um, these tips will help you as we go through. So I want to start with this, uh, this question of authorship. Who is the author of 1 John? And you may think, that's kind of a strange question, Belman, right? Like, it's kind of like asking, 
Who's the founder of McDonald's? Well, of course it's John of McDonald, right? Um, but like asking who is the author of 1 John? Of course, it's John, right? Um, uh, so that, that, that's, that's obviously a concern, but it's, it is just worth noting that some scholars, they, they question whether John is the author. And actually in 1 John and in 2 John and 3 John, it ne John never comes out and says, you know, I, John, am writing to you or like things that like Paul does. Um, he never says like John. He never mentions himself. Now in 2 John and 3 John, he refers to himself as the elder. Anyways, there's lots of good reason to think that the author is John the Apostle. That's what we're going to assume and that's what we're going to, um, you know, uh, move forward uh, on that assumption. Now, I'm a teacher. I'm used to having some back and forth. So I, I, I like that John, well, first of all, I, I like that Jim was excited that I'm here. That's at least one person. Um, but I also like that, John, that Jim likes to do things differently because I'm going to do uh, some things a little bit differently. And I'm going to ask for a little audience engagement. I understand that a few years ago you did a series on John's gospel. So those of you who are in that at least should know a little bit about John's gospel. Maybe, um, you know, there, there are other reasons you should know about John. But I want to ask you, who is John? Okay? Who is John? What do we know about John? And here's where I'm really asking you a question. It's not rhetorical. So you can chime in. If you don't know anything about John, don't feel embarrassed about that. Um, if you're a kid and you know something about John, you can engage too, okay? So what do we know about the Apostle John? Well, Larry, I've given, already given you one. He's an apostle. Yeah. Okay, he was a disciple of Jesus. That's right. He was a disciple of Jesus. In fact, um, he uh, was kind of in that group of the inner circle. I'm kind of giving it away. Anyways, go ahead. Go ahead. What else you got? Yeah. Okay, the brother of James. John is the brother of James, and they're called the sons of thunder. Actually, they're the sons of Zebedee, but Jesus calls them the sons of thunder because they're kind of fiery and bold. What else? Jesus said that he's going to give Mary to him to take care of him once he dies. Okay, beautiful scene there. Jesus is suffering on the cross, and what is he thinking about? He's thinking about his mother, and he's thinking about one of his closest disciples. And he says, look, John, now your mother. Look, Mary, now your son. Beautiful. His concern as he's, he's dying for the sins of the world is about his mother and his close friend and follower. What else do we know about John? Okay, very good. We're going to get back to that. But John refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, the beloved one. Okay, we're going to get back to that because that may, may seem a little strange. What else? Anything else? He was exiled at the end of his life. Okay, so John the Apostle who wrote the Gospel of John, wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, also wrote the book of Revelation. So he's sometimes referred to as John of Patmos because he was exiled for his faith to the Isle of, of uh, Patmos, and there he got those visions that we read about in Revelation. Strange visions. Anything else? Anyone just love the Gospel of John? He wasn't martyred. Okay, he wasn't martyred. That's really good. We're going to get circle back to that too. So he, he, he wasn't martyred. He lived for a long time. That's really important. 
Sorry, I asked, does anyone love the, the book of the Gospel of John? What do you like about it? It's not historical, it's relational. Okay, it's, it's historical as well, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's very different. If you read the, the, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then you read John's Gospel, it feels very different. It's very deep, it's relational. Okay, let's, let's pull some of this stuff together. So John is almost certainly John the Apostle. He's the brother of James, uh, were the sons of Zebedee, and uh, James and John and Peter were in that inner circle. Why do we say they were in the inner circle? Well, um, they were uh, there, at the, they were the three that were there at the transfiguration of Jesus when his glory shone forth. Uh, they were there, I think, at the, um, at the raising of Jairus' daughter and they were there in the Garden of Gethsemane. They were invited by Jesus to, to sit and pray with him before he would go through his ordeal. Uh, we have already kind of got on the table. He's the author of, th of five Old, uh, New Testament books, the Gospel of John, the Three Letters, and Revelation. And so we should think about what do we know about John in those books? How, how is what, how he writes and what he writes different from, or distinct? from the other New Testament um, books. Uh, it's already been mentioned. John refers to himself as the beloved or the one that Jesus loved. Now that may seem kind of arrogant or prideful, like, like uh, hey, I'm John. I'm the one that Jesus loves and he doesn't love the others. That, that's, not, that's not what John is getting at at all. It's not a, it's not a statement of like arrogance. Rather, we should see this as John rooting his identity in the love that Jesus has for him. That's how Jesus wants to be known, as someone who Jesus loves. Now, we are in a world that is talking a lot about identity, and those are important questions, important discussions. They're difficult discussions. They are discussions that we as Christians, I think, should be engaging in, but maybe John is giving us something to think about. Maybe he's giving us a path to follow that our deepest and most important identity is in the fact, not that we love Jesus, that's important, but that Jesus loves us. So what if we all in this room committed to like introducing ourselves like, hey, I'm Dave, I'm one who Jesus loves. Right? Is that who we really are? Is that who we want to be if we're Christians? As we think about the identity of John, I want to give a few snapshots of John that sort of get at his character. And these are all from the last few hours or the last day of Jesus' life. So the one is in the upper room when Jesus is celebrating the Last Supper, the Passover, with his disciples. And there, in John 13, verse 23, John himself records this. John is described as leaning against Jesus. Older versions get this right. If you're any King James people in the room, uh, uh, the older versions get this right when it says he was leaning in the bosom of Jesus. Okay? Now I want you to think about what kind of intimacy it would take to lean in and recline on someone's chest. Do you have anyone in your life that you can just like lounge on without any kind of awkwardness or, or inhibitions? I guess I guess slide here. This is like 20 years ago. <laughs> that's me. And uh, that's my, my niece, Erica. This was like 20 years ago. You can see 2002. We're camping. 
and there we are just like hanging out together and she is just lounging on me, right? Now this image of Erica communicates complete trust, security, carefree vulnerability. She's at peace, she's just herself, just lounging away on me. And that's what John, that's what John's relationship is like with Jesus. John here is pictured as someone who not, is not only loved by Jesus, the beloved, but also one who loves Jesus without any kind of awkwardness or inhibition. So John leaned into Jesus, that's the first image. But there's another image of John where he fell asleep. We already mentioned the Garden of Gethsemane, and this isn't a good thing. When Jesus needed him to be attentive and prayerful, John fell asleep. So in that garden, Jesus invited John, James and Peter to pray and to keep watch while Jesus was undergoing deep anguish about what he was about to experience. And John and the others failed to see the significance of this moment and their own bodily weakness made them let Jesus down when he needed them the most. So John had this deep trust that allowed him to lean into Jesus, but he was also found lying down asleep when he should have been kneeling and praying and being attentive. So John is a bit like the rest of us, not all good, not all bad, a mixture, right? And then this final snapshot we, we've kind of alluded to already. The final snapshot is, is, as, is, is of John as one who remained, who remained with Jesus, okay? So when the others fled away, right? Peter denying, others fleeing away. Mark apparently like, you know, being so scared that he ran off without his cloak. But um, when everyone else ran away, John remained. He was there when Jesus was tried. He was there at the foot of the cross with Mary and the other women as Jesus was being crucified. He was one who remained to the very end. In fact, this is one of the themes. There are many themes that run through 1 John, and one of them is abiding or remaining with Jesus and with one another. And, and John is certainly a, a, an abider or a, a remainer. All right, we mentioned too that John outlived all the other disciples. And one scholar refers to him, I like this, as the last man standing. Everyone else died, was crucified or died in other ways. And, and John is the last man standing. He probably wrote his gospel and his letters in, 90, in the 90s AD. Think about that. 60 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, John is writing to these churches. Think about all the things he's seen, some pretty cool stuff. The gospel spreading, churches being planted, people coming to Christ and being discipled into the way of Christ. Some real highlights. But think about the other things as well. The hardship of, of opposition, divisions among Christians, and the grief of losing so many people because Rome was just dead set on quashing this uh, Christ and his kingdom. So what does this do to John, this last man standing? He's a man of grit. He's a man of conviction. He's a man of certainty. He's seen and he's experienced a lot. And it's weathered him. It's made him firm. He's a little fiery. We're going to read some stuff in 1 John. He, he's a little fiery in his conviction. But it didn't make him hard or cynical. 
as it might with us. It didn't make him hard or cynical. <laughs> okay. So John was a man of deep conviction, but he was also a man of deep compassion. And this certainly comes through in his writing. He's a pastor. This feels to me like a pastoral letter. And he, he's concerned for his brothers and his sisters in Christ, often referring to them as little children. Um, I wasn't sure if I was gonna ask this, but if you had to think of like a book or movie character, who would you choose for John? Anyone wanna throw it out there? Ah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, he's not the hero. But he's the one who's just in the background facilitating the work of the hero. I really like that one. Samwise Ganji. Okay, Samwise Ganji. I've got my own uh, Lord of the Rings choice. But uh, Samwise Ganji, also somebody who just comes alongside um, the hero. Yeah, or one of the heroes. Anyone else? Okay, throw up, throw up my guess. There we go. Gandalf. Right? Look at those eyes. Look at that weathered face. Why Gandalf? Well, so, so John is a bit like Gandalf in that he seems like he's lived forever. He's seen everything. He's had so many experiences. He's not afraid to take on the scariest foes, risking it all for his friends. He has little patience for folly. You know, this, this, this fool of a toque or whatever. Um, so he has little patience for folly and disloyalty, and he says things plainly. But his years and experience have given him wisdom, and those, though that experience hasn't taken away his compassion. It hasn't stolen his hope for the cause. Okay, that's probably enough on the composite picture of John, the one who is going to be um, you know, teaching us over these next 13, 13 weeks. Um, it's important to get the right image of John in our minds because this is going to shape how we hear the words that John is writing in his letter. He's going to say some hard things, right? John, our pastor John, our John, he's going to be preaching this and he's going to have to say some hard things, right? Just as John said, the apostle John says hard things, but they're not coming as a, from a place of judgment. They're coming from a place of love and concern. Okay. Okay, we've got the author. What can we say about the audience? And I could be a lot more brief here. Uh, brief because whatever we know about the audience of 1 John is really drawn from the clues of 1 John itself and some estimated guesses from the context. So I mentioned that John was the last apostle and because he was the last apostle, he was kind of looked, looked to with some authority because all the other apostles um, had died. And so these, these range of, of churches in Asia Minor, which is kind of like north of the Mediterranean Sea, he, he had some like real authority over. The letter was probably written with a certain church in mind and scholars think that might be Ephesus. But the idea was that this letter was gonna go to the different churches, be read and circulated around so other churches could be edified by it. And so, so here's, here's the key context. The church he's written to has experienced a division. And those who left the community were, were teaching things that were contrary to the core of the gospel. And most notably, rejecting Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God who came in the flesh. And it seems that those who left the church 
were, or sorry, it seems that those who uh, were left or remained in the church had a, were at a fork in the road. They had two ways before them. They could believe the lies, leave the church, and cast their lot in with the community of the false teachers, or they could press further and deeper into their relationship with God and into their fellowship with the Christian community. And so John knows that the stakes are high and he's mustering everything that he, can, that he has to, to really um, inspire them to remain, to stay, to stay the course. So as I mentioned, John uses the language of abiding or remaining in and with Christ and in and with the fellow believers. So this is a theme and this is the reason why. Because there's this division and they have this choice before them. And he's saying remain, stay. And this is a, a message that Christians have always needed and probably one that we need today. There's so many winds of doctrine or teaching out there that would blow us here or there. So many things to divide us today, isn't that right? So many things to divide us. We need the simple truth of the gospel, the simple truth of the good news that will ground us in Jesus and knit us together as Christians into an unbreakable community. That, that, that's also a theme with John. It's not only like going deeper with Jesus, right? That, he does say that. We need to deepen our relationship with Jesus, but that ought to knit us together as a community. We need that message as well. It's not just me and Jesus. It is me and Jesus and the rest of his followers. And John is pretty serious about that. All right, so how does John communicate this message through his letter? We're gonna get into specifics, but I just wanna give a few little um, general comments yet. And that, the first is about the structure, right? I, I like structure. I wanna see the structure. I wanna know that like, it all holds together. John isn't like that. You know, my friend over here who loves the Gospel of John knows that, well, he, he has his own structure. He has kind of like the, the seven, seven sayings and these, um, the, the I am sayings and that. But, but his, his structure is more fluid, it's more organic. Right? It's not like Paul who, you know, you can count on, you know, I, Paul, to the church here, grace, mercy, and peace. I'm thankful for this and this and that, the body of the letter, then some final instructions, then some travel reports, and then, you know, the benediction. Right? Like, that's what he does. John isn't like that. It's, it's more fluid. And so we should think of, we're going to jump into 1 John 1 in a second, but we should think of 1 John 1, the first chapter, as kind of setting the overture. So all the themes are kind of there in the, in the first chapter, and then he's gonna like weave those themes throughout the rest of his letter. And some are gonna come up and then recede, and then others are gonna come. So it's, it's, it's not like a really linear structure. And, and you can, the reason you know this is because if you look at commentaries, they all disagree on what structure it is. So that's, that should be telling us something. Maybe like a logical linear structure isn't the most important thing for John. Okay, but it does mean that we should pay attention to repeated themes, because there are a lot of repeated themes in John. And another thing to just to be aware of is John is really passionate. As I said, he just says things plainly. And uh, he says some like really extreme statements in this letter. So here's a couple. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. How about this one? No one who remains in Jesus keeps on sinning. And the one who continues to sin is of the devil. And whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Whoa, John, tell us what you really think. 
<laughs> or uh, whoever lo loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Now these are very extreme statements and we shouldn't read them in isolation. We should read them in light of the whole because John kind of nuances things and then once, once we get a handle on what John is doing in the book, then we realize he does use extreme language. He uses hyperbole. And he uses, uh, you know, exaggerated speech to make a point. In much the same way that Jesus did, you know, he used extreme language. Like, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Or if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That's hyperbole, right? John does that too. All right. Let's read the first four verses of 1 John again. And here we encounter the foundation of everything John is going to go on to say. Here's the foundation. So let's read 1 John 1. I guess I'll just read it. <laughs> that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. So the foundation for John is one concrete gospel. One concrete gospel. This is the first point which might come up on the screen. I say concrete gospel, not just because I need a good alliteration, um, but because John is stressing that the gospel of Jesus that he testifies to and proclaims is one that is tangible. It's concrete, it's tangible. Notice all the verbs that pick up on this sense, on the senses. The thing that he is proclaiming is something that can and has been heard, seen, perceived and touched. It's real. Jesus is real. We had a friend, Gene, in the church that we came from back in Canada. When our church moved into the neighborhood, he started coming to church. And Gene had a pretty rough life. And uh, tough, tough childhood, tough early years and into his 20s and lived pretty rough. But at one point, God, God got a hold of Gene and turned his life around. And Gene loved to tell his testimony and he would do it often. And uh, for him, the turning point in his life was when it dawned on him that God was real. A real living being, he would say. I can hear it in his voice. Gene could confess that Jesus was real. How much more so the testimony of John, who was probably the last person alive at the time who got to touch Jesus. You got to look in Jesus' face, to hear him preach the words. You got to lean back on Jesus. The world needs to know that Jesus is real. Maybe some people in this room right now, they need to know, you need to know, that Jesus is real. People saw him with their eyes. They touched him with their hands. They heard him with their ears. The gospel of Jesus isn't just some abstract idea or some theological concept. Jesus is a real person. He's real. Maybe those of us who are Christians, 
maybe we need to be reminded of this too. Because when doubt starts to, to take its hold, when the weight of our guilt presses down upon us, or when the claims of the world start to tear away at the truth of our faith, or just when the difficulties of life make us want to throw in the towel, maybe we need the reminder that Jesus is real. The good news of his defeat of sin, of his victory over death actually happened. Jesus is real and he is the life, the life. John, John talks about Jesus as the life in these opening verses. And he doesn't mention Jesus by name until the, at the very end of the third verse. Just like in the opening of his gospel, he refers to Jesus indirectly there as the word. Here in 1 John, he also refers to Jesus indirectly as the life. Jesus isn't just real, he is the life. He is life and always has been ever since the beginning, as John says in verse one. Another connection to John's gospel, in the beginning was the word. Jesus is the life ever since the beginning. Now John rounds out this opening section by stating his purpose. He's proclaiming Jesus as the truth and the life so that his audience and he can have fellowship, fellowship with God the Father and his Son, fellowship with one another, and in order that joy might be complete. Right? This is John's purpose. Know this truth, know this life, have fellowship in God, and joy is gonna abound. So we've got one concrete gospel of Jesus as the truth. It brings life. It draws believers into fellowship and results in joy. The opening section closes, and John has set the stage for his message. We're going to read on in 1 John. So the next passage, please. The, the final, final six verses. This is the message we, had heard, we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. All right. If the first four verses of 1 John are true, then there's no middle ground. And John's audience, and by extension us today, we have two ways before us. And in these final verses of the chapter, John states about as clearly as he can um, that, uh, that, that um, sorry, about as clearly as he could, that the message that he is proclaiming is that God is light. Now, later on in the chapter, he's going to go on to talk about God is love, but for here, it's, it's God is light, and darkness doesn't have a chance with God. This sets up two ways, right? The way of light and the way of darkness. The way of truth and the way of light. The way of righteousness and the way of wickedness. The way of faithfulness and the way of sin. The way of solidarity with God and his people and the way of solidarity with the devil and his followers. 
So John uses this language of light and darkness in the opening of his gospel, and there he says that the light has come into the world and darkness has not overcome it. That the true light, which enlightens everyone, has come into the world. Now I want you to think about light and darkness. Light will always overcome the darkness. Think of, so darkness can never overcome light. Even a tiny sliver of light can push back the effects of darkness in the darkest room. Light always wins. But this is hard, isn't it? Because sin thrives in the darkness. There are certain things in God's good creation that thrive in the darkness. Eh? Mushrooms, cockroaches, right? Strange things that live deep, deep down in the bottom of the ocean. They thrive in the darkness, and sin is like that. No offense to people who like mushrooms. It thrives in the shroud of secrecy and darkness. It doesn't want to be exposed to the light, like those cockroaches when you turn on the light, it just scurries away. <clears throat> I'm gonna get a little personal here. Do you have a sin that you are hiding away? Do you have a sin that you're hiding away? You may think that the worst thing that can happen is for that sin to come to the light. And so, you think you have to keep it in the dark at all costs. I wanna tell you, and I think John is, is encouraging us to think about this, is that bringing sin to the light is the way of life and the way of freedom. And maybe some of you have experienced that. You thought the worst thing that can happen is for the sin to get exposed. It gets exposed and it's hard and it's difficult and there are consequences. And you think, thank God that happened. I feel so free. Yeah? That's what, that's what exposing sin to the light can do. But there's a problem. And sadly, the church has sometimes contributed to this problem. And the church has done this in two ways. First, I'm sure we all know situations where sin has been exposed and rather than being a place of love and repentance and healing and reconciliation, all those good things, the place has been a place, that the church has been a place of judgment, alienation, hypocrisy. In contexts like that, it's very understandable that sin stays hidden in the darkness. And I want to ask us, are we people, are we individuals, and is this a Christian community that has healthy ways of bringing sin into the light? That doesn't mean there won't be consequences, but the goal, as John puts it in verse 9, is that Jesus would be faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the goal. Cleansing cannot happen if sin remains in darkness, and people won't bring their sin to the light if the church is not able to receive brokenness and repentance. This is something we all need to work on, and I hope we can be that kind of community. There's a more sinister way. This is kind of getting dark and heavy. <laughs> There's a more sinister way that the church has and still sometimes does prevent exposing sin to the light, and that is by actively keeping known sin in the dark. The psychologist Scott Peck, in his book, The People of the Lie, says that evil loves religious institutions like the church because there it can masquerade as the light. 
Oof. Evil loves religious institutions because there it can masquerade as the light. God forbid that we are that kind of institution that actively pushes sin down and under the rug or covers up sin for whatever reason. As John says, the light has shone in the darkness and darkness cannot overcome it. What is done in the dark will come to the light. The light of Jesus brings life and knits the Christian community together in fellowship. Darkness divides and leads to death. John is urging us, be people of the light. Be people of the light. So John is setting up these two contrasting ways right there. Uh, do you think that John thinks there are only two kinds of people in the world? You know those sayings, right? There are only two kinds of people in the world, those who like chocolate ice cream and those who like vanilla. Or those, uh, there, there are two kinds of people in the world, those who follow the rules and those who break them. Or those who like coffee or those other strange people who get through the day without coffee, right? <laughs> The, the one that I like the most is uh, there are two kinds of people in the world. Um, those who think the world can be divided up in two kinds of people and those who think that the people are not that simple, right? Now, is John someone who thinks that the world can be divided up into only two kinds of people? On the one hand, John really does think that there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who follow Christ and are abiding in him and those who don't. Now, with that said, we shouldn't take some of his bold statements like the one who continues in sin is of the devil to mean that followers of Christ never sin. If we read the rest of, the, of John's letter, we know that he understands that people sin because when people sin, they repent and they find uh, healing and reconciliation and, and cleansing. So when Christians sin, so um, Christians do sin. Um, so he does think there are two kinds of people in the world, but don't think that John isn't aware of the complexity of living out the gospel in this broken world that we're living in, or that people can't change. John is aware of those things. Okay, finally, John lays out a web of three necessary and interconnected characteristics. This is the next point. And those three are knowledge, obedience, and love. And these are going to weave their way through. These first, the first two of these, knowledge and obedience, are clearly here in the first chapter of John, as John, of 1 John, as John speaks of practicing the truth, walking in the light, about the reality of being deceived, and the truth not remaining in us. So obedience and, and knowledge are, are bound up in, in those statements. And although the word love is not mentioned in the first chapter, the idea is all over these opening verses, and John will go to focus deliberately on love later on in his letter. So, so very briefly, knowledge. It's not just facts or information, but it's intimacy with capital T, truth, Jesus. Our knowledge means intimacy with Jesus. John, our pastor John talked about this last week. And so our knowledge of God, not, not to puff us up with arrogance, but should draw us deeper into relationship with Christ. Obedience. Obedience is not just a set of rules that we do to get saved or to keep God from being angry. Obedience is about our expression of faith and trust in God. It's our way, as John puts it, to practice the truth. So obeying Christ is, is about walking in the way of truth, practicing the truth. And then love. Love isn't just an emotion. 
or a feeling. It's the expression that God, God, God made to us on the cross, that self-sacrificial expression of love through Jesus. Um, um, we, we often confess, don't we, that God is love, right? That's very common. Do you know that the only place that that phrase occurs in the Bible is in 1 John? Twice. So God is love. John gets this. And it translates in, into our love for God and our love for, for other people. It ought to be tangible. And, and as 1 John 3, verse 16, 1 John 3, verse 16, not John 3, verse 16, says, By this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us, and we ought to love, lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters in Christ. So the love and sacrifice that Jesus made for us ought to translate into love and sacrifice for other people. Okay, all these are essential for those who want to follow Jesus and who want to walk in the light. So I said I was going to give you a few tips as we navigate through this series. So that's the last thing I want to do now. And I want to start with these three, knowledge, obedience, and love. Okay, maybe we can all commit ourselves over this next uh, 13 weeks. This is kind of hard for some of us, but to be introspective, to be self-reflective, to think on which one of these three am I really strong on? Which one of these three am I kind of weak on? So am I someone who really takes pride in knowledge and learning? Are there ways that I distort that so that it makes me arrogant or prideful? How do I leverage my love of knowledge so that it draws me deeper into relationship with Jesus and others? Am I someone who focuses on performance and obedience? Does that fill me with pride? Or maybe that makes me, that fills me with guilt because I don't never reach that standard of obedience. Does this reveal a lack of knowledge and intimacy of God, who God truly is? And, uh, and, and the intimacy that my failure keeps me from having. Finally, am I someone who emphasizes love? Do I look down on those who emphasize knowledge or obedience? Is the sense of God's love for me translating into self-sacrificial love for others, especially those who aren't like me? So which one of these two characteristics, one or two, um, are you weak on? How can you grow and stretch yourself into these areas? In short, take this op opportunity to be self-reflective to know yourself more and to, then to stre stretch yourself. And maybe talking to some friends or family could help you out with that. Secondly, immerse yourself in 1 John. What I've been doing for the last two or three weeks is every morning, first thing I do is open up my phone, go to YouTube, and listen to 1 John all the way through. It just takes about 15 minutes. If you speed up the thing, it'll take less, right? Just 15 minutes, immerse yourself. Now, if, if, if you're like, really committed, you can do that for the 13 weeks, but maybe do it for like two or three weeks because it's not going to be enough to get like half an hour every Sunday. We want First John to get down into our bones. And how are we going to do that? We got to immerse ourselves in First John so that when we come here and John is preaching to us, it's like getting a shot in the arm of something that we're already engaged with. Third, we talked a lot about the Apostle John, and I'd just like to say a word about our John. Pastor John. Now, many of you have known uh, John Demeter for many years and longer than I have. Some of you don't know him at all. I've gotten to know him over the last year. And what strikes me is just how pastoral he is 
how, 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 how deeply he loves, how compassionate he is, how attentive he is. He doesn't have the years of a Gandalf or Apostle John, but he genuinely loves this community. That is absolutely clear. And he cares for each one of you. And why do I say that? Even though he was making fun of me last week about my hair, um, I'm not going to take a shot at him. I, I'm saying these good things about John because he's going to preach this letter and I suspect he's going to have to say some hard things to you. He's going to have to confront us with our sin. And we all need to remember that he's doing this out of a place of love. Just in the same way that John the Apostle is doing it out of love for his, his audience, John is going to confront us with our sin. That's what he's called to do. And he's doing that in order to build us up, to make us more deeper and to, to, to make us love Jesus more deeper and to walk deeper in our, our, our faith with him. Finally, maybe you're here and you don't know who Jesus is and all this Christian stuff doesn't make a lot of sense to you. Maybe Jesus is inviting you in much the same way that he invited John the Apostle those many centuries ago. Maybe he's saying to you right now, I see you. I see the path that you're on. And it's not the only way. Come, follow me. I came to the world to bring life and light, and I came to the world to bring life in abundance. Come out of the darkness and join me in this abundant life. If, if you're in that place, if you need somebody to talk to, I'm here. There are pastors around. There are good people all around you. You can come to the prayer room afterwards and pray with us or just talk with us. Take the chance. You're being invited. My prayer is that, with the seri that what this series communicates to us might help us go deeper in our relationship with God and knit us closer together with one another that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that he is the truth. We thank you that he's real. We thank you that he is the life. And we thank you that by your spirit, we can, be, we can come out of the darkness, that we can be brought into your marvelous light. Lord, help us to be those like John who feel no awkwardness or inhibitions about just leaning on you. Feel no awkwardness about just being in your presence. And Lord, just as, as, as John did that in the upper room, as Jesus was breaking up the bread and, and pouring out the wine and offering it to his disciples as the true bread of life, as his flesh and as his blood, as the thing that represents his sacrifice that brings life. May we lean back on Jesus and be nourished in the way that he nourished his disciples those many years ago. Bless us, Lord, as we enter in and start to navigate through this series. And we pray that you will do your work with us. In Jesus' name, amen.